By the way, as I've said before, I rambled on about a bunch of stuff. Probably cut it all out. Don't worry. I will diligently listen back to my rambling and see if there's anything I like. And if not, uh, it just goes away. I'd say keep it all. It sounds like a conversation instead of, wow, this guest won't shut up. Action. Welcome to Cinema Splash Page. I'm Michael Brody, and back in the early 2000s, I managed a couple of comic book shops and ran a couple of video stores too. Back in those days, if you'd asked me for a movie suggestion, I might have recommended something like The Reflecting Skin, Philip Ridley's brilliant but harrowing 1990 film. The story, set in a desolate farmland community, is seen through the eyes of a little boy who's pretty sure his next-door neighbor is some kind of vampire. This film, a horror film, is highly, highly recommended, but it is not for the faint of heart. Back to me, lately I host a weekly radio program, publish the occasional short story, and spend my Sunday nights running a live show that I call The Best Damn Trivia in Montreal. You can find me on stage asking some very silly questions every Sunday at 8pm at a place called Grumpy's Bar in downtown Montreal, Quebec. My guest today is Jeff Strand. Jeff is an accomplished and prolific author whose work includes Humor, horror, crime, drama, and mix and match varieties of each of those genres throughout a variety of stories, novels, and series. He's been nominated for the Bram Stoker Award five times, finally winning the award in 2022 for his novella, 20th Anniversary Screening. Counting everything he's ever done, Jeff has written over 50 books. 50. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Jeff, before we get into the main part of the show, I just wanted to express my love and admiration for an earlier novel of yours, Dweller, that was published back in 2010. I consider it to be the very best boy and his monster story ever told, and it has one of my favorite opening lines I've ever read. I'm a big fan of opening lines meant to grab the reader. For instance, the first line of every Richard Stark Parker novel, you know, that kind of thing. Here is your first line from Dweller. We should have brought more ammo, Thomas said, wiping the blood out of his mustache. <laughs> as far as first lines go, that is perfection. I am definitely reading the rest of any book that starts off that well. And even though that line is pretty funny, the majority of the book is rather a serious, heartfelt tale. So, Jeff, what can you tell me about the origins of Dweller and how it was received? And the, my usual question, has there ever been any interest in doing a film version of it? Well, to start at the end, very mild nibbles of interest. Dweller, the big problem with Dweller, as far as a movie adaptation, is that the book has a huge time frame scope. So it starts in the 40s and ends in 2010, which is when the book was first published. And it covers every year in between there. So it's not, you know, 10 years later or 15 years later. It is, to some degree, it touches on every year between those, which means that it's a whole bunch of different period pieces. So not only do you need, you know, top-notch special effects because the creature in it, Owen, is a major part, you would have to have a really good creature. But you're basically dealing with a movie that takes place in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and the 2010s. 
from a budget standpoint, it would not be super cheap. But you know, I've had lots of film interest in various books, and some of them are close. Some of them, you know, some kind of faded away. Dweller has not had a ton, but there have been some nibbles of it. So I would be all in favor of it. But the origin of it is, I'll do a slightly simpler version because this could this could go on forever. But basically, I was with leisure books at the time. It was like, okay, what's your next book going to be? But well, what horror tropes haven't I tackled yet? Which is a lot of times is how I start is, okay, what haven't I done and how can I mess with it? So I hadn't really done basically a boy befriends a monster who takes care of his bullies. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not the first person to tackle that. It's sort of a classic trope. It's like, okay, what can be done with that? Well, what hasn't been done is if it covers their entire life. If it starts when he's a little kid and it ends when he's an old man. So that's sort of what I wanted to do. And I originally, I envisioned it as sort of this reptilian creature living in a well. I thought that's, that's kind of limiting. I don't want to, if I'm going to write a book that takes place over 60 years, I can't have it just be the creature lives in a well. So I thought, well, if I make him a Bigfoot, one, it's a little more credible. You know, you're not dealing with some, you know, lizard creature, you're dealing with a Bigfoot sort of, which is, you know, a little bit easier for a reader to suspend their disbelief. And I give him the whole forest to choose from. So I can really expand where the story can take place, even though our hero, Toby, isn't really venturing that far into the woods. It allows Owen to go wherever he wanted to make it a little bit more credible that this is going for such a long time. That was kind of the idea was, okay, a boy befriends the Bigfoot that lives behind his house, and it follows them for their entire lives. And my editor at Leisure was like, well, what about five years? Mm -hmm. Not five years. The whole twist is that it, it covers their entire lives. So to prove that Dweller could work, I had to do like a beat by beat outline. It was just, here's the entire book beginning to end, everything that happens, which basically proved, yes, there is a story here because the book was on a pretty tight deadline and there was no um, wiggle room for meeting that deadline because I had a publication slot. Basically, before I started writing it, I knew exactly when it was coming out and I knew that I could not miss this deadline or there would be no more contracts. So I had to prove the story works and not get stuck. But they signed off on the outline. And then I sat down and wrote Dweller, tried to make it as funny and entertaining as possible. But it's a very sad story. It is essentially a sweet story about a kid later, a man and his Bigfoot friend. But it's also a story about him making bad decisions. It's kind of Sort of the point of the book is that there are so many times Toby could go on and live a fruitful life without the Bigfoot creature, and he, he doesn't. So it's it's a horror novel, but it's also a tragedy. So I think a lot of times the humor, there's a lot of humor, but the humor gets lost just in how, what a bummer the book can be. <laughs> sort of what happens with my book, Pressure, where it's like, Pressure has, you know, it's like, ah, Jeff, you know, ditched his trademark humor for this one. No, I didn't. It's just that the book is so dark that it kind of overwhelms the humor a lot of the time but basically that was the origin of dweller was what can i do with this trope what about i you know turn it into an epic timeline and then i took it from there and how was that book received i mean did you ever get any interesting feedback on it or anything at all it remains to this day one of my most popular books you know it got nominated for the bram stoker award for best novel it's 
done really well. It is at the time, now I've done a whole bunch of books. I hadn't done as many books and I had really done a lot of books with really small presses. So for a lot of people, Pressure was like my first novel. You know, yeah, I'd done 10 other books before that, but Pressure was the one they knew me for. So it was like Dweller was my second novel for a lot of people. And Pressure is this very dark, intense kind of thriller. And Dweller is basically a relationship book. So the very first reaction was kind of, some people didn't know how to take it because they thought, oh, it doesn't have the ticking clock time sense of intensity of pressure. But it very quickly went on to become one of my most popular books. It is by far the one I get the most fan mail on. It's not the one that I, you know, when it's like, whoa, where should we start? I don't tell people to start with Dweller because it's my sad book. Generally, my books aren't quite that downbeat. So it's it's a little bit of an outlier. So it's not really the one that I direct people towards, but it is definitely, you know, there's this um, Facebook group called Books of Horror. And when it's, hey, what's your favorite Jeff Strand book? The answers are all over the place, but generally I can always count on Dweller getting the most votes. So it the reaction's been good. It is it is still one of my most popular books. Well, Jeff, we could continue to go through your bibliography book by book, story by story, but that is not really what we do here on Cinema Splash Page. Over here, we do things a little differently. We're here to talk about the films and other media that may have influenced and inspired you. So with that in mind, Jeff, why don't you start us off, tell me about something that over the course of your life you watched or read or listened to that made you think, hey, I want to do that. One of the biggest ones would be um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Just because as a kid, I would write really stupid stuff with my friends. Like, any 12-year-old boy is going to sit down and write stupid stories, try to make their friends laugh. But I wanted to do it as a living. But it's like, you can't actually do that for a living. You have to write serious stuff. If you're, if you're going to be an actual author, you have to write you know, literary type stuff. You have to read the type of stuff you're reading in school. And then you know, I read books like Judy Bloom, which it's lighthearted fun a lot of times. You know, Beverly Cleary, lighthearted fun. Cyclopedia Brown, but not just all out stupidity and goofiness. You know, there was a line. You don't cross the line. You can have fun. You can have, you know, wild antics and chuckles along the way, but not just full on silliness. And then I read this book, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams, which is just absolutely insane. And a New York Times bestseller, big book. And I was like, you're allowed to do this. The rules I thought existed don't exist. Now, of course, it turned out that you know there's a big difference from what Douglas Adams was able to do and what I was able to do. I mean, I got a lot of rejections early in my career where it was like, there's too much comedy in this. We wouldn't know where to put it in the bookstore because the market wasn't the way it is now, where there's a lot more freedom. But um, it just it was one of those books that I read, absolutely loved, and just, it boggled my mind that you are allowed to do this in a legitimately published book. So that was kind of one of the things that really influenced me. Just, oh, what I'm doing is right. I I can't believe it. This is awesome. Because when I started, I'm a horror writer now. That's pretty much how I brand myself. But when I started, I just wanted to be a comedy writer. And you see that my very first published book, it's not the first book that came out, but it was the first completed book to be sold was How to Rescue a Dead Princess, which is just you know, joke after joke after joke, just absolute silliness from beginning, which is some, I've done some of that later, but 
at the time, that's kind of what all I wanted to write was just full-on comedy. So reading Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and seeing that you were allowed to do that was a major turning point in my life. You know, I remember when I discovered Hitchhiker's Guide, I was pretty young, and I think the first thing I ever saw was half an episode of the TV version, and then I discovered the books, and then I discovered the radio show, and I didn't even realize at the time until a little later that it was a radio show first, that Douglas Adams was one writer on this little radio show called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So other people kind of chimed in on creating that story, but then when it came to adapting it, he was the guy who's like, yeah, I'll take it from here. And he took over the whole thing and rewrote a lot of it and changed it into his sensibilities. I don't know if you're aware of the history or care. <laughs> I knew that it was a radio show. I didn't realize that there had been other writers involved. Yeah, prior to the, the book existing at all, it was a radio show first. And then, of course, that brings us all the way around to the, the big budget movie adaptation that they had been working on. I think it was 30 years of failed attempts to get that to the screen. And I remember sitting in the cinema watching The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, very expensive movie. And for about 15 minutes thinking, they're doing great with this. And then it just started to feel like a big slog. <laughs> I don't know if you've even seen the film. I've seen it. I think I saw it opening night at the theater. I remember very little about it. It was just like, it's okay. Sorry. <laughs> not that funny. Not it's it's all right. I I guess I got my money's worth, but I certainly didn't leave the theater thinking, oh my God, I can't wait to tell everybody to see it. And then it's long forgotten now. I know I could tell you who's in it, but I don't remember much about it beyond that. What I love is the Infocom game back you know, in the in the olden days of computer games with the all-text adventures. You know, it was the company that did Zork and, and Channel, all those, and they did Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy game, which Douglas Adams had a major major role in and it it is the book in game form it cheats it's unfair the puzzles are absolutely insane but all the humor is there everything you know it is the most loyal adaptation to the book as you can get it was just it is legendary for just how unfair the game is how funny it is how you know just completely insane it was so i the game is my favorite adaptation of the series I do believe I played that game. So we're talking about a text-based only game. All text. I never got past the point where you uh, want to get the the babblefish. Right. It is one of the most, it's not even the most infamous puzzle in the game. I think there are a couple other puzzles that are even more legendarily mean. But yeah, that's one of them. The babblefish where it's just, you have to do try over and over and over and over, just multiple steps. It also has a, puzzle that just flat out lies to you it's like there's nothing in this room then you go back in there's nothing in this room go back in nothing in this room go back in we told you there's nothing in this room by the seventh or eighth time okay fine there's something in here wow and that was also the puzzle where you have to feed the dog really early in the game so that he doesn't eat you at winter shrunk at the very end so if you miss this little detail you know five minutes into the game after you've been playing for hours and hours and hours you have failed to win and then you have to sort of start all over and it games back then were much more heartless and hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy cranked the heartlessness up a few notches all right well uh jeff that was that was a good chunk on hitchhikers why don't you uh, hit us with another one of the things that influenced or inspired you i guess the natural next step would just be dave barry who again 
by then I had read Hitchhiker's Guide, so I knew you could be stupid. But Dave Barry took it even further. He is a was a nationally syndicated columnist. He'd done lots of books, and they were his the funniest writer I've ever read, but also just juvenile, you know, as stupid and childish and absolutely shamelessly funny. Not stupid in in as in unintelligent writing. Very smart and witty, but just the silliness level. Just it's like a kid with the extreme, you know, wit and skills of an adult writing. So I became like a massive, massive Dave Barry fan. Would read, you know, the column every week and everything he published. So yeah, it was it was again not oh you're allowed to do this just wow he takes it even further than douglas adams does and i'm completely there for it and uh what in what way is your writing at all influenced by how he wrote if i may ask a lot of it has been weeded out if you look at my real early stuff you can basically see me trying to be a combination of douglas adams and dave barry i think i it has sort of over the years sort of developed into my own style with also sort of consciously trying to get rid of some Dayberry joke patterns. But, you know, he, Dayberry, lots of parentheses, and I've sort of phased that out, just lots of goofy asides. He loves footnotes. One thing I have retained are Douglas Adams' long convoluted sentences. I'm a very big fan of long convoluted sentences for comedic effect. So I think there you can see both of them, although I've phased it out, some of it consciously, some of it just as I wrote more and more books. I sort of developed my own style, but yeah, you can, you can see traces of both of them now, but you can see much larger chunks of them in my early stuff. So if we're going to continue, essentially, um, writers who made me realize that what I was doing wasn't wrong. What I've always had is a really sparse, bare bones. I just said I do long, convoluted jokes, but that's for a humorous effect. In terms of, like, with my horror writing, I've always been kind of sparse. You know, I don't give you long character descriptions. Sometimes I forget to include them at all. You know, I'm not going to sit down and say, okay, I'm, they walked into the office with its tan walls and, Mm -hmm. you know, the white shades and sunlight spewed in covering three quarters of a foot and you know i'm just they walked into the room if they're in a cafe you don't unless the cafe is important to the plot i don't need to tell you what's in the cafe i don't need to give you too much about what it looks like but i kind of thought that was wrong because i would read you know say stephen king who actually has quite a bitter description you you have a very very clear idea of what his characters look like and all that kind of stuff and i wasn't really doing that and i thought it was wrong then I read um, Richard Lehman. I was like, wow, no, he's doing just what I'm doing. It is just bare bones description. He's just, here's what happened. I'm not going to do flowery writing. Now, there are lots of other writers I could have also discovered and got the same message. You know, if I had read Elmore Leonard before I read Richard Lehman, that would have been the same thing. But it was actually Richard Lehman that early Richard, he expanded his style later because he had such high minimum word counts for his from his British publisher, but his early stuff, they're just really thin, lean, no frills. Here's the story, mostly dialogue. So I read that. I was like, okay, he's doing what I'm doing. So I'm all in. 
again, it was another example of, I think I'm screwing this up. No, you know what? I guess I'm not. I discovered Richard Lehman about 15 years ago, and I didn't discover him through his best book. I discovered him through one of his trashier throwaway books. It was something called Cuts. And it's, I read a few chapters and I just thought, wow, this is so sparse, so delightfully to the point. But it's also like a great cheesy low budget horror movie, like a slasher film, a really good slasher film. But as I went forward into it, into this book Cuts, it is beyond perverse. I could say really, really dirty horror novel. So I didn't really know what to make of his style. And then I looked him up and realized this guy's written 50 books and started to go through them. And there, there's different ones. But again, it's the, the prose is so clean. It's literally what you just said. It is incredibly inspiring. I can't get over how well he describes things like somebody climbing out a window. Every word is perfect. He, he is, for me, one of the great descriptive authors in that what he says is so precise, I never feel like he's wasting my time. I literally just want to spend two and a half hours talking about Richard Lehman books with you now. But can you tell me, do you remember what the first book of his you read was? The first book of his that I read was, I think, Beware. And that's one of his really, really, really thin ones. I had heard of him because I read a Fangoria magazine interview with him. Mm -hmm. I think horror should be fun. I was like, oh, well, then I need to read this guy. But it was, I didn't have access to a really good used bookstore. So I kind of got what I could. And then I think at the time that I discovered him, Funland had just come out. So that was one that you could go to a regular first run bookstore and get. But really, I, you know, I read what I could. You didn't really have access to what books he had published. So I knew what was in the Fangoria article, but I didn't know that much. And then um, I had got what I could. And then I made a friend in college who's like, oh, Richard Lehman? No, he's done tons of books. And most of them aren't available in the United States. I'm like, what? what? So then I got you know online and then they had a Richard Lehman website, which had all these books. I was like, my God, there are 15 to 20 Richard Lehman books that I have never heard of that are only available in England. And actually, the very first online order I ever placed was from a British bookstore that had essentially the entire Richard Lehman collection because he was published with a publisher called Headline. So I basically ordered every single Richard Lehman book that I didn't own, along with a couple of Jack Ketchum books that I couldn't find. And then, you know, I had this gigantic pile of Lehman, and that is all I read for a while, just back to back one layman after another, after another, after another. Now, of course, they've all come back. You know, Leisure brought out a bunch of them there. Mm -hmm. But at the time, he had just most of his books had never been published in the United States. So it was just like this treasure trove of layman. So I read kind of all his stuff basically back to back. But I started, I think, with Beware, moved on to the cellar pretty quickly, Funland and um, Quake, Midnight's Lair. So a few of them I had read first, but then it wasn't until I got the big pile of British ones that I fully caught up on everything. Well, you brought it up a minute ago. I am going to continue on this thought, which is uh, you mentioned Jack Ketchum and uh, Richard Lehman, Jack Ketchum, and more recently, a guy named Brian Smith are all authors that I have really enjoyed in the last 20 years and their stuff. It's interesting to sort of lop them together because they all write really, really clean prose 
really dark, really extreme horror stories. And most people know Stephen King's work. And all of these guys are clearly, they're acquainted with Stephen King. They, they've taken what he's done, but they've taken it, they sort of removed the good taste aspect of what Stephen King might be staying behind the line of, <laughs> moving yeah. one foot over that line. Uh, all of them have written, all three of those authors, Ketchum, Lehman, and Smith, have all written books that I can't recommend to people <laughs> because I'm worried what they'll think of me. <laughs> so it's a tough, it's, they are pretty uncompromising writers. They'll just take the story where it would logically horrifically go in a horror story. So I recommend all those authors very highly, but I also say, please be careful if you're thinking of reading them, their stuff is rough. Yeah. You're, you're going to, you're going to, if you're capable of getting burned by a story, you're going to get burned. Yeah. I'm friends with Brian Smith. I was friends with Jack Ketchum before his death, but I never got to meet Richard Lehman. No, he unfortunately died at about 60. Yeah. And I, I don't know if you've read it, but he wrote a wonderful book called A Writer's Tale. I have. What happened with A Writer's Tale was it, that was the first limited edition I ever bought. I got it in. I had copy number eight. Wow. And I you know, read it over and over and over and over and over. And there was never another edition. And so I noticed that lots of people were wanting to um, read it. So I was like, you know what? I don't care about the condition. I've read it lots, lots of times. I don't care about about it being a valuable collector's item. Let's just get this into people's hands. So I started a lending circle where I was like, all right, everyone send me your addresses. You, I'm going to send it to the first person. You read it. You send it on to the next person. They read it. And then eventually it'll make its way back to me. So I'm, it's a cool thing I'm doing. And by the second person, it was gone. So... My copy of Writer's Tale, if, you, if anyone owns number eight, that's mine. <laughs> no one got, oh, it was gone by the second person, and I don't know where it is now, and the lending tree failed because all these people didn't get to read. There still hasn't been another version. There's actually been talk that if when it happens, I'm going to get to write the forward to it, but so far nothing has happened with it. Oh, I, I mean, it is one of the great books on writing. It belongs on the shelf right next to Stephen King's on writing and any number. I think uh, it also belongs on the shelf next to the pamphlet Elmore Leonard wrote. What is it? The 10 rules of writing, all of which are keep it simple, essentially. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that is that is the greatest one page description of how to write I've ever read. Elmore Leonard's rules for writing. I think the challenge with a writer's tale is that now it's really more of a curiosity piece because none of, you know, it's at the time he wrote it, all that information was good. A lot of that has changed now, because it's a lot of it talks about the market, mm -hmm. the marketing aspect, and that's completely different now. So you'd kind of, if you published a brand new version, there had to be some sort of disclaimer, like you know this is a product of its time. Don't you have to understand that a lot of this information is completely outdated. But it is a really, really good book. It's a very compelling read. Jeff, don't you have a, a book on writing yourself? I do. I've got The Writing Life, Reflections, Recollections, and a lot of cursing. It is not a book on how to write. It is a book on the writing life. So it is how to cope with bad reviews or poorly attended book signings or all that kind of stuff. It is all, it's all about the stuff that is surrounding the writer's life. It was kind of like 
my version of Stephen King's on writing, except that I am easier to relate to relate to than Stephen King. Yeah, well, you're not a billionaire. Yeah. I mean, as far as I know. No, I'm I'm almost, <laughs> but not quite billionaire status. Just staying with Layman for another minute, it's nice to read his book, A Writer's Tale, and actually read the parts where he describes his process and how much time he spends on everything. I'm always a fan of hearing specifically how writers break down their days and how much they devote to things and what kind of results they get or expect to get. And since, since I brought that up, Jeff, if you don't mind me asking, how do you divide your time in order to get books written? Can you tell me a little bit about your process? My process is the process of a student who has procrastinated on the paper that is due Friday. <laughs> and so the, the amount of writing I do goes up exponentially based on how close I am to when it's due. So I'm not, I would like to be the disciplined writer who says, oh, you know what? If I do a thousand words a day for 75 days, that finishes the book in 75 days. But it's really, I am not as productive as I should be until I start to get, you know, as soon as that deadline is looming, like I have a book that is due um, July 1st. So right now it's like, well, I, based on when we're recording this, I have plenty of time to write the book. I'm not worried about it at all. But what will happen is, once we start to get two weeks before the book is due, then it'll start to become very, very real. I won't, it won't be, I haven't started yet, but it will be, oh crap, I have a lot to write. So it's kind of, I will, you know, be in a frantic race to the finish. And then once it's done, I'll say, well, I'm never going to do that again. I'm going to start disciplining myself a little bit better. And I won't. So. All right, Jeff, why don't you hit us up with your your next pick? I'm going to go with May, one of my all-time favorite movies. It was uh, Lucky McKee directed, starring Angela Bettis. She's sort of this very weird veterinarian's assistant who um, falls in love with this guy who says, you know, he likes weird. And it turns out he likes weird, but not that weird. And I think the tagline is, if you can't find a friend, make a friend. There's there's a Frankenstein aspect to the story, and the reason I'm bringing it up, one, it's one of my favorite movies, but it was one of the first things I saw at a film festival, where I was like an early adopter. So it didn't have a distributor. No one had heard of it because it was just you know doing the film festival circuit, and I saw it in the theater with no real expectations. I knew that. It was, she keeps body parts in her freezer. All right, well, that's all I need. I'm going to go see this. And I saw it at the Florida Film Festival, and I just was like berserk over it. And I would have gone to see, they, the festival had two screenings per movie, but I had seen the second one, which I was cursing. So like, I would have gone to see this, you know, the next day again, because I love this movie so much. So it was one of those deals where I just was really closely following the movie. So like they got a release, they you know they got a distributor. I can't wait. This is great. And then they said, "All right, we've got a um, distributor. And we're, we've got a very short one week test release. So it's going to play in just a couple markets. And if you're anywhere near, you need to go ahead and see it because this is going to determine what kind of release it gets. And those releases did poorly, so it never really got a big release. 
So it's just one of those movies that at the time I was telling everyone I could possibly think of, you know, you have to move May. This is one of the best movies I've ever seen. I, I'm, I'm so excited. This is so, so good. And then, you know, it eventually got a release and it has gone on to become a cult classic. So now a lot more people have heard of it, but it was just one of those, I will always have a soft spot for it just because I was not, you know, I was not involved in any way. I wasn't there from the beginning, but I was one of the early people to see it. So I followed it from then on and followed Lucky McKee from then on and just really, really liked it. I discovered May this similarly to you, not at the original film festival. I discovered it on DVD a little while later. And there is one, I love that movie, but there is one moment in that film that stuck with me because sometimes a little scene will be magical. It resonated so hard. It is the sequence in which May tells this love interest the story about the time working in a veterinary office they had to use the wrong sutures yep the smaller sutures on a larger animal and it is i think the sequence begins with her saying i'm going to tell you a story that is probably going to disturb you and usually you think eh probably not but then i heard that story and i thought nope no that one did it that is one it is genuinely disturbing and genuinely funny yes a truly terrible terrible amazingly memorable sequence in an otherwise wonderful film. I actually got to introduce a screening of May at the Alamo Draft House in Houston. I, mm. It let me pick the double feature. And so I chose May followed by Tucker and Dale versus Evil. So that was, in terms of movies that never did find an audience, long, long time ago at the Tampa Bay International Film Festival, I saw this very, very small shot on video feature called The Robert Cake. It was just basically a guy who is talks to his friend, says, when I die, I want you to take my cremated ashes, bake them into a cake and eat it. That's my dying wish. And it kind of goes from there. So it's basically a horror comedy shot on video, very cheaply made. I think, I think I heard they made it for like a hundred bucks. Like they didn't really pay for anything except for the cake mix. Just, you know, friends, houses, video camera. So no money was spent on it at all. It did not become a cult classic. No one has ever really heard of it for the most part. I think it is on YouTube, but it was just this movie I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed. I was, you know, talking it up as much as I could. And, you know, it never really went anywhere. The star of it, Jeremy Gardner, has gone on to do quite a bit of stuff. He he was in uh, the movie Spring, which I loved. Mm -hmm. He's uh, written and starred and directed other stuff. So he's gone on. But overall, the Robert Cake never really found much of an audience, which when I was updating my blog regularly, at one point, it was like, you know, long, long time ago, I saw this movie, The Robert Cake, that I really loved. I can't remember the context in which I brought it up, but the director left a comment saying, you know, it means so much to me that, you know, you saw my movie and enjoyed it. And because it, it just, it didn't really go anywhere, but it's a really fun movie. And it just, I'm bringing it up now just as a piggyback off of May is something that I saw in a really small, you know, this was a complete dud of a film festival. And um, I just got to watch something that I really, really enjoyed. And it's like, I'm not the only person who saw the Robert Cake, but I'm part of a very small elite group of people who saw the Robert Cake. And I still think about it fondly even now and it's been a long time so i think it's about a 
20 year old movie and i just really really enjoyed it and wish it had you know catapulted everyone involved into great things so well i will say that uh based on your recommendation i watched the robert cake yesterday oh a 21 year old movie starring as you said jeremy gardner who is now an indie horror darling person because he made a little movie called the battery right. which is really really well respected yep. and uh it is definitely an amateurishly put together shot on video movie and it isn't bad it actually does go somewhere it has an arc the characters go through very strange changes i will say that for a movie where one person convinces another person hey if i ever die do me a favor and eat my ashes there's not a lot of motivating dialogue that would get me to go through with that request <laughs> <laughs> they don't they don't try super hard to convince you there's a reason why this person is going through with it but uh i was surprised to see where the movie goes because it's sort of odd and lighthearted, and then kind of turns into a a bit of an extreme horror movie in the last act and then it just gets weird again yep but it was it was certainly an experience uh yeah the robert cake and unfortunately nobody else who worked on it really ever did anything else i think it has something like 80 80 starred reviews on the IMDb and no written reviews, not even a festival review. So Jeff, you're going to have to do the world a favor, get on the IMDb and write a little, literally you can just use a transcript of what you just said about the film and uh, put that up. I'm sure that would do the film a world of good. Wow. You did your research. If you're checking out the Robert King. I know. When someone's saying, you know, what is your favorite obscure movie? Like the Robert Cake is what I whip out because the odds are overwhelming that they're not going to have heard of it. You know, you're like, oh yeah, Robert Cake, I enjoyed that one too. Anything that you that you sent me on a list, I went and at least saw if it was available to check out. And uh, yeah, that included a few things. I was not able to go back and read uh, 40 Years of Dave Barry columns. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, why don't you hit us up with another one of your picks? All right, going into more horror, I picked Plank Face, which really is sort of catapulting off of this movie Found, which Found is another one of my um, film festival discoveries. But I have been on a one, I've been on an episode of the Necronomicon podcast where I talked about Found for a solid hour. So I didn't want to revisit that. So I picked another movie made by Scott Shermer. Mm hmm. Just super low budget, super, super dark stuff. Plank face, I added it to the list and then I started thinking, you know, it's very hard to discuss plank face without actually spoiling plank face. So I'm not going to talk about it a whole lot, except to say that it is about a guy who is out on a camping trip and is essentially kidnapped by a feral family. And where you think it's going to go is not at all where it goes. And, um, Try to decide, should I just ruin Plank Face with the broad strokes? You know what? I think I'm going to. If you don't want Plank Face, the broad strokes of Plank Face spoiled, fast forward or listen to another high quality podcast. But what the deal with Plank Face is, he is kidnapped by this feral family. They wear animal masks. They're just filthy, disgusting, barely verbal. They may even be non-verbal. They may not even talk. But he decides this isn't so bad. 
it's kind of he is kidnapped and it is not the texas chainsaw massacre with sally hardesty trying the whole movie to escape he is a guy who like this i don't mind this lifestyle and it's kind of the slow gradual realization that this this isn't so bad i maybe i'm in no rush to get out of this i saw it at the nightmares film festival one of my favorite film festivals and it just in terms of completely upturning your expectations of what this movie is going to be it completely works so it was my favorite movie the nightmares film festival that year and but really i picked it just because i sort of thought well from the guy who brought you found without me talking about found again well in preparation for this interview i watched plank face and when i did a little research when I did a little research, I did see it was by Scott Shermer, uh, the guy who'd made Found, and I had seen Found. In fact, I had even read the novel Found was based on. Yeah, I love the book Found is based on. Yeah, by Todd Rigney. Yep. And yeah, the, um, the movie Found is pretty hard to watch. It's a really disturbing horror movie, but that book is even worse. Yep. It is, I, for the right person, the book Found by Todd Rigney will be an absolute masterpiece for you, but for anybody who's looking for a fun, easy, forgettable horror read, don't touch it. It will it will scar you for life. It is rough. <laughs> so Shermer makes a movie version of Found. He even does a weird spin-off movie of Found, uh, Headless, I think it is, which is sort of hinted at within the Found universe. And then he comes along and makes Plank Face. And there are so many movies I've watched in my life where you watch the actors and you say, Okay, that could not have been any fun to make because they are naked and filthy and freezing to death throughout this movie. They are outside in the elements. Everyone is just going for it 100%. And it's just such a deeply disturbing experience, just watching them live through this. I, I, I could barely concentrate on the actual, let's call it a plot, because it's a very loose story, but just watching those people suffer. Yep. I remember seeing um, The Revenant yeah. with Leonardo DiCaprio and hating every minute of that movie and then watching him win an Academy Award for, well, basically suffering, for sitting outside, uh, rolling in the mud and crying and being sad about it. And frankly, I think the actors in Plank Face do just as impressive a job, if not more. Yeah. One of the actresses was there at the when they showed it and she's, I think she confirmed it was, I think they actually had a lot of fun with it, but it was cold and miserable. I think they were happy to be making a movie. It was good times, but yes, cold and walking barefoot. And it was not physically not the most enjoyable, even if the morale was high. Well, Jeff, if we're getting into the segment of the show where we trade a couple of little known horror movies back and forth i also prepared a couple for you so for your plank face i'm going to offer you a film called the special from 2020 have you heard of this film uh yeah i am friends with uh james newman who i actually blurbed the special the book oh <laughs> that is an incredible coincidence so a couple of years ago, I found this little movie called The Special. came out in 2020. It's uh, directed by someone named B. Harrison Smith. And simply put, for anyone listening, it is a movie about a man who goes to a brothel and is offered something called The Special. And he goes into the room, and the room is empty, except for a box. 
And that is all you need to know about this movie, because everything that happens from that point on will delightfully scar you for life. And it is all about a sex thing and a box and some deeply disturbed people. And it is a weirdly compelling movie that by the last five minutes, I would have to argue is in its own special way, a perfect film. You're not, you're not going to hear that review a lot. The special, a perfect film. Yes. I just looked up my blurb on it. My blurb is completely fucked up in the best possible way. So that's practically what I would have said. There you go. So yeah, <laughs> I'm very familiar. I actually did not get to see it with James Newman. It was James Newman and Scott uh, Steensland wrote it together. James invited me over to watch it at his house, but um, it was in the thick of COVID. It was like, you know, we're all going to be at separate tables. Everyone will be masked up. I'm I'm still going to skip that. Mm -hmm. I'm very well acquainted with the special, both the movie and the book. If you're ready, why don't you tell me about another one of these very cheaply made horror films that you uh, sent me on a list? Uh, The Dead Inside. I was not able to procure a copy of The Dead Inside, but I did watch a trailer for it. And I have a vague understanding of how it works. So uh, why don't you tell me, why don't you sell me on the Dead Inside, Jeff? Dead Inside is a very low budget horror musical. And it has comedy in it, but it's not a horror. You know, there are a lot of horror musicals that are just full on comedy. So Dead and Breakfast, stuff like that, where it's meant to be funny. And there's some humor to the songs, but overall, it's a pretty serious, kind of sad horror film. And the songs are really catchy. I listen to them fairly frequently. I'm not going to give away, unlike Plank Face, which I kind of blab the main art. I won't blab where this one goes, but it's basically the main character is a frustrated writer of zombie novels and stuff happens. But really, I enjoy it just because it is a musical with catchy songs. Another one of those things I saw it, I think this one I saw at the Freak Show Film Festival and just really really enjoyed it speaking of low budget musical horror films there was a movie that came out a couple of years ago which is a musical zombie christmas film and it is called anna and the apocalypse oh yeah i love anna and the apocalypse it's just worth mentioning in the uh in the very specific category of horror musicals (laughs) you know i'm kind of surprised they never went never got around to shooting a real version of the Evil Dead the musical because I've seen that performed live and it was lovely. Yeah, I saw it not that I've seen it three times at different venues. The last one was actually last Halloween and yeah, it's it is insanely entertaining. I am surprised they haven't just done that as a movie. Yeah, I mean it doesn't have to be a 20 million dollar version just not just turn a camera on when they're get a good quality camera crew when they do a stage performance of it and put that in theaters. There is a cast album, I can say that. Right, yeah, I have the cast album, I love it. <laughs> yeah, no, I love that. I'm, any chance I've had to see it, I have gone. Uh, well, why don't you hit me up with your next straight-to-video horror film? All right, uh, Brain Jacked. Which again, I could not procure a copy of, but will be delighted to have you sell me on. Well, I'm not even really gonna sell you on. I picked Brain Jacked because I was cut out of it. Oh, local production. <laughs> I guess I also should have done the Uh-oh show. Maybe I'll add that one, even though that wasn't on the list. 
my friend Andrew Allen and his partner Andy Lolino were making a movie called Zombotomy. And he emailed me and said, Hey, you want to be in a movie? Like, yeah. So I went out and I was I was supposed to be playing a homeless guy. And I was part of a very brief action sequence where I was sort of like lying on a slide, but then the hero was pursued by the villains and they basically put a gun in my face and said, where did they go? And I, this way. So that was going to be my big moment. What happened was it was the first day of shooting and I was supposed to get, I think I was supposed to get there at 6 PM and be done by nine. And then they were going to move on to other shots. What happened was I got there at 6 PM. They shot my stuff at 6 AM in the morning. And by then they had cut it down to basically window dressing. Mm. Like, okay, you're going to have a line go basically that way. And by the end, I was just lying on the stairs while the main character walked by. And then they cut that all together. So I think I'm still in the credits, but yeah, I was completely cut out of Brain Jack the movie. But it was kind of fun. You know, I got to be in makeup. The makeup was good enough that when I walked up to the director, he thought basically I was some homeless guy who had wandered onto the set. And it, you know, it's a fun movie. It's a very, very gory movie. And it was also at one point going to be called Trep Nation. So it went from Sambotomy to Trep Nation to Brain Jack. <laughs> implant. There's this gory thing where you implant these chips in your brain, and then they can control their behavior. So it's a fun movie. Very, very low budget. Well done. Occasional acting moments where the low budget really screams at you, although the main characters are good. And, you know, it's a fun, very, very, very obscure movie. But yeah, I I would have been in it for about 10 seconds and instead I'm in it for zero seconds. So that's why I included it. Uh, why don't you give me your next straight to video horror film? Uh, the Uh Oh Show, which I was not cut out of. And that was uh, Herschel Gordon Lewis, the guy, you know, the godfather of gore, the guy mm -hmm. who did Blood Feast, 2000 Maniacs, The Gore Gore Girls, Wizard of Gore. You know, this was going to be his next movie. And the director of Brain Jacked was a producer on this one. He's like, hey, do you want to come out and be in a Herschel Gordon Lewis movie? It's like, yes, I certainly do. So this time I was there at the very end of the shooting. And so Herschel Gordon Lewis, who was in his 80s, was energetic, enthusiastic, full of life. Meanwhile, the crew of young people was like, oh, my God, he's running us ragged. We're so, so tired. <laughs> he had way more energy than the rest of his crew. And um, I was basically a sound technician. So we're in the, my scene. We're watching TV or we're watching the monitors and the big bad wolf breaks in because it was originally called um, Fairy Tales was in the title. I don't remember what the actual original title was. But it was about fairy tale creatures coming to life. And it ended up being called The Uh Oh Show, which is the name of the game show that is a big part of the movie. So in my scene, the big bad wolf breaks into the television studio and kills me. So they had a big actor playing the big bad wolf, and he also had a butcher knife in each hand. So in my scene, I went up to confront him. He grabs me by the shoulders while holding his butcher knives, and then we struggle and then the next time you cut to me, I'm dead. The problem is, yes, the actor was much bigger than me. In a normal fight, he could absolutely have kicked my ass. And there is no question about that. However, 
both his hands were full with butcher knives. So when someone is grabbing you by the shoulders, but their hands are full, it's very hard for them to keep a hold of you. So trying to struggle while pretending I couldn't get away, it was very difficult. So he did the scene and I'm like, oh God, that looks horrible. And so end scene, we did the scene where basically everyone in the television studio is dead. And then I got to watch the premiere. I'm at the very end of the movie dreading how bad this scene is going to be. This is going to be the most embarrassing, mortifying thing I can imagine because this is going to look so, so bad. So I get through there. I say my line, what the hell? It's like, hey, that that's a perfectly good delivery of what the hell? But then the big bad wolf attacks me. He grabs me by the shoulders and they cut away. So it's like Herschel Gordon Lewis's editor spared me the shame of the inept struggle. He grabs me, it cuts away. You don't have to see the two of us struggling to pretend that I could actually not get away and I'm done. So it's actually a really funny movie. It's really entertaining. It does not have a Herschel Gordon Lewis feel. I know a lot of people, the Herschel Gordon Lewis fans were like, you were in a Herschel Gordon Lewis film, you're my hero. But it doesn't really feel like one of his movies. I mean, he directed it and everything, but it doesn't have kind of the tone, but it is a fun, a very, very obscure, gory horror comedy that I am in. If you want to see me get killed and deliver one line, that that's the movie for you. Jeff, your latest release is something that is unorthodox, to say the least. It's a new novelization of the 1978 movie Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Yes, audience, you heard that right. A loving adaptation of a film that tops many critics' worst-of-all-time lists. Right up there with Manos Hands of Fate, Battlefield Earth, and Paul Haggis's Crash. <laughs> Jeff... Can you tell us a little bit about how this novelization came to be and why now is the right time to revisit Attack of the Killer Tomatoes? Well, I think it remains to be seen if now is the right time to do it, but <laughs> it happened. It really just came about really from a joke tweet. It's like, okay, what am I going to tweet now that will amuse my followers? So I tweeted, how is it possible that I have not been hired to write an adaptation of Attack of the Killer Tomatoes? <laughs> and so... I got an email from Encyclopocalypse Publications and said, hey, I saw your tweet. If you're serious about that, let me see if I can get the rights. It's like, yeah, see what you can do. And a few weeks later, I was in a Zoom meeting with the filmmakers and they were all all in on it. The original filmmakers? Yes. They're, oh. all, they're all still around. And so um, my pitch was, I'm going to treat this like you had Marvel Cinematic Universe money. And they said, we would like it to be kept as family-friendly as the movies are. Not squeaky clean G-rated, just not exceeding you know, the hard PG that the original movie is. So I'm like, sure, that's what I would have done anyway. And then I had, from there, complete creative control. And you know, it was really about the matching the tone and doing sort of a mix of the movie and my sensibilities. Because it tops a lot of the worst movie ever lists, but a lot of times people who don't get that it's supposed to be a comedy, like when these cheap looking tomatoes are just rolling and you can tell that they cut before they turned, that that's the joke. So you'll get a lot of things saying, you know, 
how can this movie even exist? Why would they think we're scared to kill her tomatoes? Well, you're not supposed to be. It is a blatantly comedic, very, very silly, goofy kind of movie. So what I wanted to do was not reuse their jokes. It wasn't going to be a legitimate novelization where it's like quoting jokes that were in the movie and then here they are in novel form. So the only time I actually reuse any of their jokes is if I'm using it to move into something else where I expand it or take it in another direction. So I really, I just kind of used it as the framework, the scene by scene framework until it goes completely off the rails around the two thirds mark and just sort of follow it scene by scene, but put my own spin on every scene and just make it as funny as possible. You know, the movie is self-referential. So the book is really, really self-referential and just sort of take what was in the movie, keep the tone of silliness to it and go completely batshit with it. So that's really what I did. And it was a lot of fun to write. People are loving it so far. I don't know if now is the time, you know, it's, it is too early to say at this point, it's still pretty much a brand new book. So it's hard to say if it will have any kind of wide appeal or if it's just the really hardcore fans. There is a lot of Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, a novelization. I'm getting both. That's the greatest idea that has ever happened in the, in human existence. And Really? Why would you do a novelization of that? Like who who thought that was a good idea? So it's not supposed to be for everybody, but for the people who are in that demographic, it is being responded to really, really well. That may be my ultimate claim to fame is I wrote the novelization of Attack of the Killer Tomatoes 45 years after the movie came out, which is not a tactic most people use when they are doing novelizations of popular movies. Well, while you were writing the book and because you were in contact with the actual original filmmakers, was there anything that you put in that they objected to? No, nothing. And I was, I know where the lines are. One of the on running jokes in it is that a lot of the movie hasn't aged well. And so I had a lot of fun with making fun of that, calling it out, the stuff that you would not put in a 2023 version of Attack of the Killer Tomatoes movie. But I'm sure they're aware of that stuff. They're not like, you know, how dare you point out that there's a little bit of misogyny in that humor that is product of its time. But I sort of called that stuff out in a funny way. But no, there was nothing where they said, yeah, you kind of messed this up. They were, I think they really enjoyed the book. Oh, here, here's a question for you. Off the top of your head, what what might be another or several other movies you would love to do a novelization of if given given the opportunity i would do i don't know that i'd want to do a novelization of the texas chainsaw massacre mm -hmm. but if they said do a tie-in novel where i like take those characters and do my own story that would be i would really like to do that once i announced tech the killer tomatoes lots and lots of people like you need to do killer clowns from outer space which i would do in a heartbeat i know that the rights to that are tied up and that will almost certainly never happen. So Killer Clowns from Outer Space. I have thought I could do a really good novelization of May, but Lucky McKee is also a novelist. So he doesn't need me to do the book version of his own project. He can do that himself. So um, I'm going to go with a Texas Chainsaw Massacre tie-in novel, but not a novelization or a novelization of Killer Clowns from Outer Space. I think actually there was a I did. I wasn't at the panel. I was at the convention. There was a panel on novelizations, and they asked the audience, you know, what would you guys most like to see? And someone told me later, you know what? What people came up with was the novelization they would most like to see 
is Jeff Strand doing a novelization of the movie Dead Alive. It's like, oh, yeah, I would, if they hired me to do that, I'd do that in a second. But no one has, in fact, come to hire me to do that. So there are a few. That's a great one. But just remember, for the super fans, you have to call it Brain Dead because that's the real title. All right, I will call it Brain Dead. <laughs> don't, don't, don't tell the purists you're calling it Dead Alive. They'll hate you. It's, uh, if you don't know, it's because there were two movies called Brain Dead that were coming out the same month. I've only ever seen the Dead Alive version. I've seen them both, and um, one of them is a little better than the other. I won't say which. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I will ask you this because you sort of brought it up earlier, but you didn't answer this question. was your own question. Jeff Strand... Of all of your books, which one would you recommend someone reads first? If I'm asked that in a vacuum where I don't know anything about the person, mm-hmm. I, I have like a few default answers. I will go with Wolf Hunt. That's kind of the one I default to. I also sometimes will say Allison and sometimes Blister, but I'll go with Wolf Hunt for this answer. It's I think that is probably the best distillation of my writing style. It's got lots of action, lots of gore, lots of humor. And it's one of my more accessible ones. It's basically a crime novel mixed with a werewolf novel, really fast paced, lots of fun dialogue. And it was the first in my George and Lou series, which is followed by Wolf Hunt 2 and Wolf Hunt 3. Blister is kind of a weird romantic comedy. Again, one of my more accessible ones. So that's one of my most popular books, one of the bestsellers, one that people like a lot. Again, I don't use Dweller just because even though it's one of my most popular, it's my saddest book, whereas Blister isn't sad. Wolf Hunt isn't sad. They're just fun books. And then Allison, one of my more recent ones. Again, I think when people say, you know, what do you recommend? I'm going to go with the stuff that has a little bit more mainstream appeal. I'm not going to say, oh, go with Fangboy, which is one of my weirdest books, or I'm not going to say My Pretties, which is really, really dark, or Bring Her Back, which is also really, really dark. So in terms of you know, what do I think that someone who I don't know will enjoy the most? I'm going to go with Wolf Hunt. Uh, just, just for fun, give me the one-line synopsis for Allison and Blister. The one-sentence synopsis of Blister is a successful cartoonist banished to the cabin of his agent after a public relations disaster meets the hideously deformed resident of a shed in the woods. And Allison... Allison is basically the equivalent of if Stephen King's Carrie went on to be a middle-aged woman who lives by herself because she still can't control her powers and can break people's bones with her mind. Uh, before I let you go, Jeff, is there anything else that uh, that we can touch on, promote, mention? Well, um, Billy's Balloon, which is a short film by uh, Don Hertzfeld. He's best known. He actually was nominated for an Oscar, I think, a couple times. 
So he's probably better known for stuff like Rejected. But Billy's Balloon, it's a very short film. I think it's only about five minutes. It's stick figures, like all of his other stuff. And it is basically a very young child holding a red balloon. And then the balloons start to smack into it. And it is a pitch black comedy. There's no gore in it. It's just, it is cold-hearted, mean-spirited, one of the funniest things I've ever seen. I saw it as part of the uh, Spike and Mike's uh, Sick and Twisted Festival of Animation, and it was my favorite one of that year. And it's just this, if you go on YouTube and find it, it's, it is just five minutes of the cruelest humor you can imagine. And it's just, you would never imagine that stick figures could be really, it's, it is genuinely disturbing, even though it is stick figures and not actual gore, but it's just the way it is presented, no music, no wackiness to it. It's just, it's weirdly disturbing and weirdly funny. Yeah, it is a, I would almost call it a sweet, unrelenting child's cartoon. Yes. <laughs> um, I was not aware of Billy's Balloon <laughs> until yesterday. I had certainly seen Rejected. I think I've seen many films. Somehow had missed this amazing early uh, film by, by Hertzfeld, I think it is. Yep. I somehow missed that one, and it is an extraordinary short. Billy's Balloon remains my favorite animated short film. Just, I think, the simplicity and the cruelty of it. Because you don't, you wouldn't think that a stick figure movie about a kid being beaten with a balloon would be disturbing and it is it's just you watch it and it actually makes you uncomfortable even though there's not a drop of blood in it or anything graphic but it, it is a horrifying but hilarious movie i read a little bit of trivia about that short and it only earned him a it was made for a class it was a final project it only earned him a b in the class <laughs> and then was i think it was a, a con film festival favorite after that so it is, it is kind of amazing to find out where things go after a teacher summarily dismisses it. Well, from a grading standpoint, it's like, well, the production values are pretty, you know, bottom barrel. So I get, you know, it, it really, really works. But this poor teacher has to, you know, grade it on, you know, on multiple fronts. Whereas, you know, the stuff that works really, really works. But it's, it's low quality animation and it's very, very simple. So I sympathize with the teacher who had to take this masterpiece, but also grade it as a final project. It is, it is kind of amazing. And I'm, I'm a little sad that, that Don Hertzfeld hasn't had more breakthrough into the mainstream somehow. I don't know that he wants to. Nothing about his, I mean, really his later stuff is if anything weirder than his early stuff, less successful, you know, you know, he did a opening couch gag for The Simpsons, and it is just complete, full-on surrealism. You know, he turned down offers to do lucrative commercials in his style. So, I don't, I don't know that he is bemoaning his lack of mainstream success. I think he is. I do not know the guy, but from what I have read, I think he is perfectly happy doing what he's doing. <laughs> 